Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge Podcast. I'm Jeff Young. When teachers tell their authentic stories, it can lead to powerful insights and spark discussions about how to solve the many problems facing educators. That is the premise of the Voices of Change Writing Fellowship that we kicked off here at Ed Surge just last year. We brought together a group of diverse educators from around the country to share their experiences navigating the school year. Three of the educators from our inaugural cohort of writing fellows recently shared the lessons they learned and some challenges they faced, and they encouraged other educators to raise their voices as well. The discussion took place during a panel at the ISTE Live conference in New Orleans last month. I was lucky enough to moderate this, and I thought it was such a powerful session that I wanted to share it here. So for this week's podcast, we're bringing you highlights of that panel, recorded in front of a live audience a couple weeks ago. Here we go. All right. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to, um, honestly, you're in for a treat. Um, I know this is going to be both a powerful and a a valuable session because um, we're talking about how to help educators and students tell valuable stories. I'm Jeff Young. I'm the managing editor at EdSurge. Um, For those of you who don't know EdSurge, we are a free online publication. We cover um, innovation and tech and education, but also just change in the education system. And um, we are, EdSurge started about 10 years ago, but um, about two years ago, we got acquired by ISTE. So we are are part of ISTE, but we maintain our editorial independence in the EdSurge newsroom. Um, today, we are here to talk about actually one of the projects we're most excited about these days at EdSurge. Um, it's a writing fellowship called Voices of Change. And we started it about a year ago or started the process of getting it going. Um, and it brings together a group of diverse educator writers from across the country. Um, and they share their experiences navigating this time that we're in right now. Um, and. Um, we, just to let you know a little bit about the fellowship, we had, it was a competitive application process. Uh, a lot of people um, applied, and, and we identified a cohort of teachers and school leaders um, with a wide range of identities, experiences, backgrounds, and perspectives. And really, the, the goal was to, fi- to really identify those missing from dominant conversations about issues around innovation and, and change in education. And so um, it's actually part of a broader project that is called Voices of Change that we're doing at Ed Surge, where we're really looking at how school communities um, are adapting to meet the needs of all learners, um, particularly in response to the pandemic and the national conversation about structural and systemic racism. So our inaugural cohort of these writing of writing fellows included seven educators, um, and they over the past nine months they have somehow managed to write while they're doing this hard work and the work that they're describing, which when you read it, you're like, how do they have time to write this? Um, they worked with EdSurge editors to bring to life their, their viewpoints, their experiences. And um, honestly, um, I, I really encourage you to go read their work because it's hard. It's, there's no way for me to capture it. But luckily, I don't have to. You can go there right now to edsurge.com, scroll down about halfway down the main page, the front page. There's a box that says Ed Surge Voices of Change Writing Fellowship. You can see, more, learn more about the fellows and read all their work. Um, and um, you're lucky we have three of them right here um, to join us and to share their experiences and talk about, um, you know, basically 
give you actually tips and advice on from what they've learned through this experience. Um, and honestly, I think it actually gets into a lot of big issues that um, that are floating around this conference, and maybe some of them not being discussed at this conference. That um, about you know the, the 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 challenges that education is facing right now. Um, so let's introduce the panel. Uh, at, at the end, at far end, we have Aisha Douglas, and she has been an educator for around 11 years, and she's an academic dean at Achievement First Brooklyn High School, um, so New York in the house. Um, she has a master's in adolescent education, and, and she's been a middle school teacher um, at some point. Um, lately, she's been focused on um, te uh, teacher development and curriculum adaptation in the humanities. Um, in her writing fellowship, she's explored the need for radical approaches to building school communities that foster innovation, creativity, and empowerment, and the importance of teacher voice in decision making. Um, thank you so much for being here. Yes. <laughs> Next, we have Dietra Colquitt. Um, she is, uh, she's been an educator for more than 16 years. Not that we're like doing it based on numbers, <laughs> but you know, she's a co-principal at Pershing Elementary in um, school in St. Louis. Um, and she's an alumna of the school district that you're teaching, um, which is pretty cool. So um, she's, she's all already done a um, postgraduate studies at the University of Missouri, St. Louis. And um, you are certified middle school language arts, K-12 special reading and school leadership. Um, lots of skills here. And as a writing fellow, um, Dietra has explored the power of school redesign and rethinking leadership models. Um, and she's also talked about finding herself as a teacher um, and explored responsibility of educators to critically examine research and standards to ensure that they're, they're actually serving all students. Um, thank you so much, Dietra, for being part of this. And last but not least, we have Jennifer U. Brannon. Um, and she is a teacher and instructional coach at El Monte, in El Monte, California with a, over 16 years of experience. I've just got to be, you know, a lot of experience. If you add it all up, it's, a, it's, a, it's a many, many years of experience up here. Um, she mentors teachers and um, designs and facilitates professional learning um, in her district uh, and her school. As an Ed Church Voices of, of Change writing fellow, um, she's been exploring the intersection of her personal identity and the experiences of her experiences in, and also with her professional life, highlighting how teachers are humans too. Shouldn't be a surprise to anybody, but actually, um, you know, kind of can feel like it. Um, and so um, I just am so excited to welcome you here too. Thank you. I, I think the stories that you've published are so deeply personal. Um, I guess what advice do you have for education writers uh, it, when it comes to being vulnerable in their writing? And actually, Jennifer, maybe we'll start with you um, if you're mic'd on here. Sure. Um, I want to start by saying that like writing is hard. <laughs> it is difficult. And uh, I have this Ibsen quote that I always think about that uh, to write is to sit in judgment of oneself. And it's this very kind of reflective, solitary act, which is difficult to do when you're a busy educator, especially if you're a parent. And it feels, um, it, I was just telling Jeff, it, it felt selfish for me to take time to write because it's something for me. Um, but the more I did it, the more I realized, like, no, I have to do this. And it's, it's such an empowering feeling. Um, so any advice I would give is, like, 
it's okay, you can do this. You can take time to reflect and think and write. You deserve that. Um, and I would also say that you might not think that your stories matter. You, every time I sat down to write, I thought, okay, there are like smarter people, more well-researched people, people with higher degrees who are kind of saying similar stuff, like who am I to write this? But I always tell my students that their stories matter, that every story matters. So I really had to sort of coach myself, like my story matters. Um, and I had to keep telling myself that and believing in that to keep going. Yeah. Um, Dietra, do you want to add to that at all? I would say just reflecting on this opportunity, don't get caught up in the grammar and the, all of that, right? <laughs> get the words on the paper. There will be somebody there to help you get crafted and get it to the audience. But sometimes we're so much in our head, right? Because we want it to be perfect the first time. All the things we tell our students, we're not following that when it comes to us. So make sure we are modeling the same thing we're telling students. Just get the words on the paper. I love it. Aisha? Um, I think my advice is just uh, about the process. Something that I learned is there is so much power in controlling our narratives. Um, and I think as educators and leaders right now, the narrative is created for us. And the power in this fellowship and something that made me so excited to be a part of the fellowship was finally I could be in control of the story. The story of my experiences, the story my students, the story of my school. Um, I'm in the charter world, and there's a lot of narratives around that. Um, it was really powerful to be able to say, you know what, these narratives have been created, but this is what I've experienced. This is what my students experience every single day, and this is how we are working to change what education looks like in future. So any advice that I would give is just that believe in the power that writing has to change the narratives yourselves and for your students and for your community. You know, let me stay with you because I love this point and also how this idea of spurring change, right? Because it isn't just, a, I love how we've kind of gone from, it's not some selfish act or maybe, sure, maybe you get something out of it. Great. Like that's not, it doesn't make it bad, but there's this, there's this bigger thing about change. And so how have you seen change from the writing you've done and how do you think the potential you know, for others and all of us doing that. Yeah. Uh, the change that I've seen isn't necessarily just like explosive. Suddenly, my school or my community is just like, we're winning. Um, I don't think that has been the change. I think it's the change that I'm seeing is that I realized that I was not being my authentic self. Um, mm. So I think, you know, I was trying to be very politically correct and adapt to what expected and so I think the change that I've seen is in the work that I'm doing now I feel braver hmm. um, I feel okay to be my authentic self and I feel okay with people not necessarily being okay with my truth um, so yeah I think that's that's the change I'm hoping that that shows up in the way that I develop teachers develop curriculum and work with our students teacher what do you think had the change, and again, like both from your own personal situation, but also like what is at stake when, you know, what is possible with this sharing by educators of all, of, you know? I think the sentiments that Aisha shared are like when you think of change, it's not overnight. There are people mm. who are going to read the article maybe a year from now, maybe two years from now, who are reaching out to say, oh, 
Like, I think the same way. So I would say I, I don't know the impact, and that's the vulnerable part of this whole process. You're mm. putting yourself out there, and if you're looking for instant gratification, it's not going to come. <laughs> you cannot do this for those reasons. You have to do it because you believe what you say has an impact and is going to touch somebody, even if you never know what that impact is. Yeah. Yeah. Jennifer, do you want to jump in? Yeah, I think um, this kind of connects to the first question, too, about um, why write and what advice you would give. And it, the, I'm borrowing from community organizing. There's uh, Marshall Gans is a professor at Harvard, the Kennedy School, and he talks about public narrative in the context of political movements. And he talks about story of self, story of us, and story of now. Right. So uh, when I w sat down to write, I was like, OK, what is the story? my personal experience, but how does it connect and resonate with other people? And then what does it say to this current moment? And so another piece of advice I would have for anyone who's writing in education is, is think about those three things, like me, us, now. Um, and then the power of public narrative to change and impact uh, the conversation. So teacher friends have reached out to me on social media, and I had a teacher friend in Minnesota who said, I showed up for my um, administrative credential class and the professor gave us all a copy of your article uh, make schools human again and told us all to read it in her training principles course at, at a college level so that that was crazy to me and I've had other friends who said you know we had a meeting with admin and we we just everybody dropped this article in their inboxes like <laughs> teachers just like slyly putting my article in their admin inboxes saying please read this this is my experience too so I think there's power in just affirming each other's experiences and then you know, saying, hey, as the SEL task force, let's read this together. So I'm, I'm seeing the impact in that people have found in our written work, like this gives language to something that I've been feeling and sharing that article with their colleagues and friends. You know, I th that really goes well into something I think is also interesting to talk about, or I'm curious to hear your, all of your views on this, which is like, what do you think is the most important thing? This is kind of what you've mentioned just then, what educators need to hear from each other, why that's valuable, which makes, I totally hear that. What do you think the public needs to hear from, you know, more teachers and more different types of teachers about the experience right now? Um, Aisha, do you want to go first? I see you nodding your head. The truth? <laughs> and yeah, what would they hear if they're listening? Um, you know, I think I, I spoke about this in a, a blog post that I did for our network about our students, that our students are not a monolith, right? I think working yeah. with black and brown students, um, school population, black and brown students, um, sort of we speak about black and brown students. It's like one mm. people having you know, the same, same experience. And I think it's the same for teachers, I do think uh, the public opinion, depending on what the stories are, looking at the stories that are being censored right now, it sends this message that, you know, we are a monolith, that every single teacher feels the same way, having the same experience, we're getting the same. So I think the public needs to know that we are all having a different experience. We all have different needs. Our students all need different things. Um, even the funding, right? There's a there's sort of a national narrative about, like, funding in education, um, the public needs to hear the truth. There is funding in education, just not where I am. 
So um, I do think that the public just needs to know that we are not all having the same experience, and we need policy to consider that we are not all having the same experience. So, yeah, I think that's that's probably where my mind would be at. Teacher? I think Aisha did a great job, right? When somebody says something so well, you don't have to follow it up. But I would say (laughs) the one thing is um, the public needs to know how to disagree and be agreeable, right? Um, To the point of we're not all the same, but if we continue to shut down diverse perspectives, we're creating robots. And that's not what we want our students to do, right? So again, we're modeling one thing, we're saying one thing and modeling something totally different. I I think what is so powerful about personal narratives is that when the broader narratives, as Aisha was saying, are kind of putting a story on you for a voice to say, this is my lived experience, and it's in your face, and it's harder, I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's harder for other people to other you, right? So to put you in a camp, because um, as Professor West was talking about, Yesterday, like there's there's a lot of uncivil discourse right now, um, but there is power in hearing from educators in their own voices, saying, "This is my lived experience." You can say your uh, media bubble tells you this about teachers, but what I'm saying is, "This is my lived experience." So you need to respond to that story, not just what you think um, is the narrative, the dominant narrative of my experience. You know, I'm hearing that it sounds like the, one of the things you've called to, to attention, which I think is interesting, is a contradiction maybe between what teachers tell students and that they value, their, all stories are valuable, and then something that blocks a lot of teachers from actually doing that and modeling it, as you said, or, you know, putting their voice out there, um, especially around these issues of the craft that you're in. Um, what do you, but how do you, that said, like, because it is pretty popular to tell students, you know, that their stories have power, but it's also a little bit trite. So, like, are there ways in which you think, are, are there tips on how to, how to work with students on getting their student writing to embody what you've learned in your experience as a writing fellow this year? Aisha, do you want to start? Um, it's because you, um. you nodded most vigorously. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it starts with us um, modeling vulnerability for our students and telling our stories. So, you know, just like what we're doing right now. So I, I do think tips, I think moving away from the technical and the tactical in writing classes and more about experiences. And I know journaling is a, a, a big thing and it might sound like, one of those, you know, checklists, have students journal, but taking away the pressure of structure and grammar, like you said earlier, saying, no, just tell your story yeah. and tell your story honestly and tell your story to yourself first. I think telling ourselves the truth, very often we are, we are living our truth, but we're not honest with ourselves about it. So giving space to students to, to sit in their truth on paper without having to worry about all of these other things. Would be, would be one tip. I think the other is uh, opening the doors to our community. Uh, we talk about community partnerships, but I don't think uh, 11 years in, I'm the baby at the table. Um, I think 11 years in, I don't think I understand what that means still, uh, community partnerships. And when I 
think about opening the doors to the community. It's allowing people to come in and also tell their stories and their lived experiences and their truth. And having our students see that it's okay that um, what they are experiencing, feeling and thinking is not problematic or wrong. Um, so especially now that we are in this Zoom world, it's so much easier to open up the doors, invite people from your community to tell their stories to your students so that they can in turn be like, you know what, there's value in my story too. And, and be able to put themselves out there. Then we can do the grammar and all that stuff after. Do you want to add yes, something? Yeah, yeah. so I, um, I teach emerging multilingual students, so this is their kind of second or third full year of a schooling in America, and I have a big poster in my room that says, it's an Amy Chua uh, quote, that says, do you know what a foreign accent is? A sign of bravery. And they, you know, all, I, you know, I don't put a blank piece of paper in front of them because they're still sort of getting a handle on the language, so... I, I tell a lot of stories about my own experience as an immigrant's daughter and kind of the funny kind of stories about learning a language and helping my parents navigate um, different experiences as English learners. And I use uh, Flipgrid a lot, and over spring break, I had them do a project. We were doing a unit on overcoming obstacles. And I said, I want you to interview somebody. It could be a parent. It could just be an older sibling any story of overcoming an obstacle and how, what skills or strategies they use and do it in whatever language is most comfortable, um, interview in, in Cantonese, in Spanish, and then give me a summary of, of that in English. And some of their summaries are like, my parents had difficult time, the end, you know what I mean? And that's okay, that's where they're at with their language. But just the power of getting into the practice of being fluent in, you know, in your home language, but also starting that journey of like just telling the story and having them have those moments with their families. So um, a lot of sharing of my own stories, a lot of giving them just the opportunity to answer questions that kind of are open-ended that leads to storytelling, and then using great tools uh, like Flipgrid where they can just, it's super easy, push a button, start talking. You know, Dietrich, I want to, I definitely wanted to add one thing before I hear from you on this one, because I just was reminded of something that I feel like the typical advice, there's this quote, I actually, since the internet exists, I was able to pull it up, I didn't remember this, but David McCullough has this famous quote that says, writing is thinking. To write well is to think clearly, that's why it's so hard. Which is great, but I'm also struck by this, all the comments up here, is it's more than just organizing thoughts. It's more than just being like some sort of like, it almost assumes there's like some objective thing, like academic material, that if you write, then you'll get better at at rewriting someone else's thoughts. But in a way, like what I'm hearing is like by writing, you're also processing and you're doing more than just thinking clearly, which is great and you are doing that probably. Well, maybe not always in my writing, but we try. Um, But you're actually getting at something else. You're like processing, like you said, you're like seeing, you're thinking through the narratives that are about you and about the systems you're in and your own place in it, which feels like almost even harder, like even harder than writing already was. Oh boy, I just made that worse. Um, Do you know what I mean? And I don't know if that rings true to anybody. Um, I just wanted to add, one of the things we have to do is make time for writing, make time for reading, make time for math, we make time for science, but we do not make time for students to write. They have to read 
write a summary. They're writing a research article. They're, they're not writing just to write ever, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're not making time for it, they don't get to be creative because they always have an agenda. I feel like sitting at an EdTech conference, um, if you read my article, you will find, read some of my articles, you'll find out about me that I am, I am not your tech gal. Um, so I am here to learn like everyone else. Um, but I think we, tech right now is something that is, is very powerful. It can be so many opportunities for our students when we think about writing. But I think before we even think of the very specific, you know, I could say to you, like, uh, have them create a document in Google Classroom, the slides. I, I could say that. Um, but I think it starts with the power of the why, uh, not just for students, but in our planning. Like, why do I want them to write? Why, why am I even doing this? Why do I even want to use this tech right now? Um, so starting whatever you plan, whatever you want to do, whatever curriculum you're using, whatever your coach tells you to do, getting really grounded in the why first, I think makes everything way more um, purposeful and intentional and clear. And then what you get from students, I think, is more powerful. And now, there is as awesome as our writing fellowship was and your work was, I know that it wasn't all just easy, smooth sailing. And I'm curious about if, if anyone's willing to share like an unexpected challenge that came up with putting your ideas in the public sphere um, and, and how you navigated those. Um, I won't do Aisha first because <laughs> every time I've been doing that. Um, do you want to go Jennifer first? <laughs> Well, it, I mean, this goes back to the advice. Don't read the Facebook comments. <laughs> um, Which was, yeah, that was, that's, that's advice for, well, yeah, anybody yes, doing this. That's yes. real. There, uh, so I think starting small, um, after my first piece, uh, We Need to Make Schools Human Again, uh, was published online, my administrators, one of my administrators said, like, very sort of condescendingly like, oh, that was like good and all, but I don't really think it's about teachers needing trust. Like, and just, just really put it down and, and said that, um, that he, I think what happened was is the, there is a section in that piece where I say, administrators, here's what I'm saying to you. I'm speaking to you now. And I think they took it as a personal attack on them. Um, and they were very offended by that. And there has there was not a lot of, there was no kind of acknowledgement or congratulations from my, my district, my site admin. Um, a lot of support from my teacher friends. But, you know, that was my first taste of like, oh, if I'm going to put myself out there, I'm, I am opening myself up to a lot of opinions. And th those opinions might be f informed by some ugly things. And I know we're going to get to that, <laughs> those ugly things. But you know, and then there are people who just don't read your articles at all and just read the title and make all sorts of crazy comments, you know, so be prepared for that. I agree. So it's like we've had some of the similar experiences. So I would say in one of the articles I wrote, it said um, prison, it, didn't, it said school to prison pipeline, and we know it should have said prison to school, and they like, she doesn't know what she's talking about. How could she write it? But you know what I meant, right? So... Just know that, like she said, when you're putting yourself out there, um, just guard yourself. And if you want to be vulnerable, I mean, if you know your purpose, you're going to be okay. 
But if you get caught up in all of what they write, they're going to be scared away and your voice will be stifled. And that's exactly what people want to do. So don't let that happen. Um, <laughs> uh, so I, one of my articles, um, if you, um, I talked about white educators needing to really examine their, their privilege and address their biases before getting in front of uh, students, uh, many of the population that they serve. And I did the thing and I read the Facebook comments. Um, and uh, as a black woman, as a black woman educator, it completely broke me and I almost left the fellowship. Uh, one, because I, I had that feeling of, why did I say those things? I don't, I don't know anything. I haven't written any books or, or done the research. Um, but it was my truth and my experience. Uh, I coach white teachers, and in the article, I talked about the reflection I had to do for myself. Like, I can't coach uh, this teacher the way I would teach or the way I would interact. I, I also have to examine my beliefs and, and things that I do, figure out how can I help this teacher be authentic in front of students while also making sure they're not bringing problematic ideas and beliefs into the classroom space. And I thought it was just really honest and like a great think piece, and I was hyped. And um, that is not how it was received. I got called many things, including a Marxist. I don't, I don't know where that came from. But um, it, <laughs> it also really broke my heart because I'm, I'm a mother of two. Um, and I thought, wait, are these the teachers that are in classrooms with my children? Mm. Um, some of the thoughts that were shared... It, it made me think, I don't think education can change. I don't, this is what people believe deep down in their core. How, how will our students make it? How will they ever change the narrative for their communities and for themselves? And it was scary um, and overwhelming, but I was really glad that I said the things that said because the reactions, I think, for people who maybe read the Facebook comments or the article, it will force them to, to be reflective, I think, about, well, why, why am I so defensive? Why do I think what she said was so, so, so bad? Does that, does that mean that I don't believe I have privilege? Um, and I hope that it, it puts people in a position, puts white educators any educator really in a position to be more reflective about why they're having such a visceral reaction to some of the language that I used. Um, and obviously I didn't fellowship and I'm, I'm happy, but it, it made me realize how important my voice is, how important our voices are, how important us putting our stories out there are, and how important our work is. So a challenge, but a win. I just wanted to add this, this little detail. One, one of the Facebook comments, I wrote a piece about lawmakers and concerned parents, here's what's really happening in my classroom, and that was the title. And one uh, commenter on Facebook said, I know what to do with teachers, take them all out to the desert. I don't know what's going to happen there, some kind of violence, I'm assuming. But this, this person spelled it 
as like dessert. <laughs> and my like teacher squad got on Facebook and was like, I love dessert. I love chocolate cake and just sort of like. <laughs> the teachers get dessert? <laughs> yes, I'm all for teachers getting dessert. Um, so that was fun. And I do have some administrators who did affirm me in my work. So if they're watching, like some of them really did support me. Oh, yeah. I mean, honestly, I feel like, you know, thank you for doing it. I mean, we're still going here. And I actually am about to turn it over to the audience for questions. So, um, but, you know, this, it, it it's both, it sounds like takeaway, though, is that it's both challenging and rewarding. Um, and we've, we've talked a little bit already about the, about the impact piece, but I'm, I'm curious if there's any other... You mentioned, Aisha, about your, you've changed yourself and your teaching a little bit. Um, Jennifer, have you had similar... From doing this, have you changed anything about the way you operate in the classroom or think about education or both? Definitely. I think that... I was in a similar place with Aisha kind of pre-pandemic where I was really questioning, like, what am I doing here? I felt disconnected from the good work of teaching. And I highly recommend Demoralized by Dora Santoro. Um, And in that book, she talks all about teacher demoralization. But she also gives kind of an outline of how can we be re-moralized to do the work of education? And for me, this fellowship has re-moralized me. It has connected me again with like, wait, I'm doing this because personally I believe education is a civil rights struggle of our time. I believe that as flawed as it is, um, education empowers people. And that's what we should be about as educators is empowerment. And so because I felt empowered in this fellowship, um, I could show up with that power in my classroom. So it re-inspired me because I felt good about what I was doing, and I wanted to go into the classroom every day believing what I was doing. So, the, I mean, for me, it just gave my students and my teacher colleagues sort of a re-energized, re-moralized instructional coach and teacher. Teacher, do you want to add anything? I think for me, it helped me more human staff. Like, so I'm a building principal, so to see myself, I wrote an article about telling students that you're sorry because I remember the teacher I was teaching middle school where you don't smile, you're right about everything. And I was a young middle school teacher, so I was like, you're not going to win this fight. I'm going to win it. Sit down. And I have to look at myself like, that is wrong. That is absolutely wrong. So to have teachers read my story, because now I'm telling them, like, you can't talk to kids like that, but this is why, because I walk that and I know the consequences. And you don't know the impact you have on kids 10, 20 years from now, so you want to get it right or try to. We're not perfect, but we want to walk um, as straight as we can. So I think it helped me be more human um, to the people I serve. Um, is there anybody that wants to ask a question? I'm going to come around and we're going to get input. I'm going to grab the mic. My name is Shelby Bryan. I'm a high school English teacher from Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And something I struggle with is finding authentic audiences for my students to write for. Um, of course, like telling them their stories are important is valuable, but then, like, proving that. I, I, if you have any tips on, like, where to find authentic audiences or examples you've seen, that I would appreciate that. Uh, anyone who wants to go first, just... Um, you have authentic audiences. Uh, their families, their communities. Um, I think the, the cool thing about where you are right now is it's the platform. It's how can you use the platforms that you 
about here at SC to get those stories out to those to those authentic audiences. And um, things spread like wildfire now because of, of the internet and all the different platforms. So uh, I think using what you have and then creating spaces that can then sort of blossom. Uh, but I think they're also really cool. Uh, Scholastic has a ton of opportunities for students to publish their work as well. I know they're pro here. Um, there's a ton of opportunities to, to publish student work and competitions. Um, also, publications will accept writing for editorials and blogs. Um, there are so many startup blogs, podcasts. Um, I think just finding things that are geared towards teachers and saying, I have students who also have a viewpoint here, a perspective and a story. Would you like to hear it? Um, and just, you know, using what's there and then building from there. Yeah, I think starting in your own building. So in my high school, the English language development classes were all scheduled to be the same period, so we could easily move them according to skill level, but also creates this community. So everybody, if everybody is having ELD third period, you can share some stories. You can um, have them create a group like Flipgrid or have published work with a QR code saying like, hey, just scan the QR code and read my work and have students do a gallery walk where they're talking about their work. Um, also, with another group of um, students, we did a book club project, and their kind of culminating activity was that they had to record a podcast of them discussing these questions that I gave them, and then they shared their uh, podcast with the class, but also as part of this larger media center uh, project where like, they made posters saying, you know, that they put up in the media center, like, check out this book. Our book club read this book. Listen to the podcast about it. See if you're interested in reading this book. So there are kind of little ways that you can um, start small with authentic audience and then go bigger. I would say use your school district, right? You have a communications department. They need to work, right? So make sure <laughs> you use the people in your school district if they are publishing um, newsletters that goes to the community and you want to highlight your students work so don't forget that you're gonna you're working too hard because that's somebody's job right <laughs> and then I would also say students are so resourceful they know the places where they may want to put the work so just even asking them where they want to see the work because you're going to show them that you're interested in them it's not about you and where you want it it is about where they want to see their work highlighted uh, any other questions out here while I'm oh good uh, hi, my name is Kelly Moser. I'm from um, Pennsylvania, and I work in a school district actually that's urban. And we've had a lot of conversations over the last two years about sort of um, a lot of the inequality and equity issues across the communities. Um, our community, our school community, is more than 80% made up of students of color. So it's a, a weird situation where you've got a lot of white teachers and non-white students, and, and we really want to encourage these conversations and encourage students to be vulnerable. I think the thing I really struggle with is that there are so many rewards in asking kids to kind of be vulnerable and, and put their voices out there, and how do we um, prepare them and help them deal with the same emotional roller coaster that you all felt when that reaction to their voices is negative or harsh or, or even worse, because at, at the high school level, like, they're still very emotionally vulnerable at 14, 16, 17. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, as, as adults, you had struggled with it, and here you have high school students going through these similar challenges, potentially. Yeah, I, um, 
at the California Association of Teachers of English, I did a presentation on um, brave spaces for civil discourse in the English classroom. So if you find me, I will just share all my resources with you. Um, but right. I think creating that space in your classroom with some collaborative agreements around um, here's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to discuss difficult things in our class and our focus is, is going to be on mindsets and definitions. So I spend a whole lot of time doing groundwork of like, we're not even going to touch the topic, the hot button topic or what you want to say. We're first going to build some common ground on let's come together with a common definition of something. So then the purpose doesn't become, I want everyone to know what I think about this or what I think about you, but as a collective, we're coming to uh, an understanding, right? So, and then uh, with my in junior English classes, we did every Friday with Socratic seminar. And we are in an alternating block, so that turned out to be every other Friday, and each um, student led those Socratic seminars, not me, them. So all of first semester was sort of just like building the groundwork of like how we're going to talk to each other, how we're going to engage with each other, the importance of definitions. Um, and then we can do this difficult work. And it, it is so hard because our high school students know that they get just pooped on, I can't use the other word, instantly. Like they put anything out there into social media and like a thousand people just like trash on them, you know? So you can say to students like, this is the, the world we are gonna operate in, in our class. Now if we can create it here, I want to empower you to create that elsewhere in other spaces. And that's why it's so important that we focus, and not just for an English teacher or an English classroom, but everybody focus on how to create uh, brave spaces for civil discourse. Just to clarify, you're worried about, or, or your concern is about how their vulnerability, the ideas that they share will be received by white staff members and, and other white students, or just in general? Just in general. General, okay. Um, I would I would start at at the school level. I I think often we put the work on people of color to prepare themselves when really the work starts with the audience, right? So I'm a big fan of affinity groups. I think before we put students in a position to put themselves out there, the work needs to happen uh, with the people are going to receive that information and receive their stories. So I think the preparation starting just at the school level, staff members, students, and, and not just affinity groups for white staff members, but also for your students of color, um, people need to be prepared to hear things that are hard, but are true. And they have to do that work first before we put our students out there. It is not their work. But preparing them for the fact that your truth is, is going to make some people upset um, and that it's not okay and it is not your responsibility to make them feel better and it is not your responsibility to, to edit or adjust your experiences for their comfort, um, I do not think we, we need to be preparing our students for what's coming or coming at them. I think we need to help them be fearless, um, no matter what. And I think we need to put the onus and the work on the audience that may be comfortable with hearing the things that they have to say. So I think that would be 
I had. And let's, okay, so please join me in thanking our, our panelists. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week, we bring you discussions about education innovation. Please do make sure and go read some of the articles written by these fellows and others in the Voices of Change Writing Fellowship. Just go to edsurge.com and scroll about halfway down. You'll see information all about the fellowship and the fellows. And this week, we're announcing who was picked for our second group of writing fellows. So look for more at edsurge.com on that as well. This episode was put together by me, Jeff Young, and you can find me on Twitter at J.R. Young. Music for this episode was by Mon Plessier. Thanks also for help this week from Marissa Kaplan and Rebecca Koenig of EdSurge. The Voices of Change Writing Fellowship is supported in part by a grant from the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.